This podcast is brought to you by Datomics. There are nearly 100 data providers in your DSP, but only Datomics can enable marketers to target audiences in cookie-less environments with scale and accuracy. Discover how to reach inventory that your competitors are missing. Learn more about our game-changing technology at datomics.com slash cookie-less. That's D-A-T-O-N-I-C-S dot com slash cookie-less. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by my co-host, Eric Franchi, and Matt Prohaska, who I would describe as the busiest man in ad tech. Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you, Ari. Oh, great to be with you and Eric. It's an incredible studio setup you guys have. I, I couldn't believe uh, the money pouring in to have such high-end Wi-Fi. The marble statues of Sergey Brin and Joe Zawatsky in the front, though, was a little surprising. Um, wow. Okay. You know, knows, it's a normal podcast studio. That was strange. Well, we actually have news. So Eric is sitting in front of his new TV, uh, blaring uh, the Dwayne the Rock Johnson movies. Tell, tell us about this TV setup you have, Eric. Uh, yeah. So there's a, a a new startup called Telly. Uh, URL is freetelly.com. Um, we're we're an investor out of the fund. And the idea is um, exactly what it sounds. It's a it's a free television that is uh, subsidized with with ads. Um, and I have, I think, one of the first consumer models or models that are sent to uh, to the public. I was lucky enough to get a hold of one. And this thing is ridiculous. So it's a fifty five inch four K theater display. So it's like the best TV like in my house. A Harman Kardon uh, sound bar, and then the the tele unit underneath, which got all sorts of functionality. And I got it installed earlier this week, and um, I was thinking my productivity would be plummeting because of the access to you know every movie and, and show and, and and YouTube video I mean, cr- created ever. Reboot if they um, watch alone for you, Eric, I'm sure it takes up six hours a day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it's actually been great. Um, I have it in my office. What ads have you seen? Yeah, that's all we want to know. How's yeah. the personalization? Yeah, what's the CPMs like? Yeah, so... You know, again, there's a separate bar underneath it that's got, you know, this like utility and it's got ads. Um, so it's been a rotation of some D2C brands, actually some local brands that I think are like, you know, kind of being plugged in programmatically all across the board. So it's it's neat. It's early. It's a cool company. Um, I think everybody just go to Free Telly, sign up. I unfortunately don't have a, a priority code for you. Wow. Um, but this thing is awesome. Uh, I'm going to like, send you a uh, invoice for our advertising uh, sponsorship for Telly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. It, as you guys have uh, chronicled very nicely around uh, things coming back around, I was privileged to be part of the free service of giving away a laptop 24 years ago. We had the Did hypothesis uh, that we thought the internet would be something outside of a desktop. So it was a flat iron investment. So uh, Fred Wilson and Jerry Colonna, uh, I'm sure uh, those of you uh, like Eric, who are all stars in VC, know those names. It was called the Internet Appliance Network. We gave you a free laptop that did nothing but email and web browsing at super fast 56K. We had the first behavioral targeting ads at 234 by 60 in the browser, URL targeted. It worked really well. And then March 14th, 2000 hit, and suddenly the world changed and we needed to be profitable in five weeks, not five years. So we applaud Telly and think it's going to do pretty well. 
free PCs, free email. Uh, you have uh, get paid to surf the web. Everything will free news, do again. free content, free services, free apps, just like we've had for a little while. <laughs> All right, so I. I we ju- we just jumped in. I didn't have a chance to do our uh, housekeeping, so I just want to make a couple of announcements to our listeners. First of all, um, we're going to talk about the Habu Live Ramp deal in a moment. But in advance of that, we have made both of those in-depth videos on Architecture TV free. So if you're still required to register, but if you want to learn more about Habu and what they do, I did 45 minutes with the CEO, goes into a lot of depth. There's also a transcript. If you don't want to watch the video, all you have to do is register and go to architecture.tv. Secondly, we are live on the chat GPT store. So our, we've been dabbling with AI for several months. I think I've talked about it on the show. Uh, we had a chat bot on our architecture website that wasn't that great. Well, we have uploaded it to the chat GPT store. So if you are a paid user of chat GPT, search for the architecture bot and install it. Uh, and it's free for now. You have to pay for chat GPT. I don't know why they're calling it a store because you don't have to pay for it and I'm not making any money, but I think that's going to change. They're, uh, releasing stuff very quickly, and I think they forgot about making money. All right, let's get into it. So, Matt, I called you the hardest working man in ad tech. I just want to know how many miles do you have? What is your your because you go to every single conference ever. If there are two people talking about ad tech in a Starbucks in Detroit, Matt's sitting next to them. So <laughs> how many miles do you have? That is part of our brand. We uh, stole the cloning from Dolly so there could be more of us around. And, and fortunately, it's it's not just me, despite the name of the company. The company was just me. My ego's not that big. It's just it started as an LLC when I was running around by myself. And now, fortunately, there are about 100 of us running around around the world. Yeah, one of our initial uh, logos or brands was going to be like the bottom of my shoes because they get worn out from fortunately walking all over the place. And Last week's, like they did, there were holes in the shoes. I was going to take a photo, and that's kind of us. Um, you know, hustle is one of our five core values where you know we know that being present for our clients and in the industry, and especially post-COVID, the re-recognition of face-to-face and being in real life with people. You know, Last week at CES, again, another example of you don't catch things on Zoom like you can at the Audigent happy hour on Thursday night when most people are gone and or exhausted, but you get 12 quality conversations that you wouldn't have had uh, if you didn't show up for 30 minutes. All right. So um, you, you, we're not going to get a mile count out of you, I guess, but uh, I think the point stands. Um, so I like having consultants on the show because um, you see a lot of variety. So what are the big issues that your customers, your clients are asking you to address? Yeah. So four years ago, we decided to focus on a core four services because we were worried after six years at the time of being inch deep, mile wide or master of none. And so we kind of planted a flag and said, we think these areas are going to be most important for a little while. The first two, not by coincidence, the same two things that Google, Apple, Meta, TikTok, and Amazon have like crazy and thousands of publishers and brands don't. Number one is identity and number two is attribution and measurement. So that is still very much in the news, topic one and one A. They are each having their own Gartner, you know, hype cycle paths right now. But certainly those two are are most relevant as the quote unquote TV and digital worlds continue to collide. You know, in some cases it's chocolate and peanut butter, in some cases it's oil and water when it comes to culture and methodology and habits with buyers and sellers and analytics folks. So those are the top two things that we're paying attention to. AI obviously is an underlying kind of horizontal that touches every service that we have. 
And uh, we've been uh, blessed to do a lot of M&A work related to those two areas, but also outside of that, where we've had a couple dozen PEs and about 15 strategics. We've been fortunate to help, and, and we've got uh, hopefully four more, actually, that were all conversations uh, at CES in a two-day period that are sparking back up again. A couple in the news already that you guys, I'm sure, will get to in your great uh, sure will. Um, so what do you mean by identity? Like, do customers come to you and say, I don't have enough identity, uh, my my web presence is anonymous and I need to change that? Or what, what sort of assignments as a consultant do you get? Yeah, so there are some parallels to early days when we were known as a, a programmatic specialist about 10 years ago, where we would do DSP and SSP selection and optimization, then we would do DMP and CDP and ad server and DCO and CRM and and all the all the TLAs out there, three-letter acronyms. So in some ways, this is no different. Um, we've produced, uh, several years ago, we started producing this identity partner list of more than 100 companies that have either deterministic, probabilistic, or contextual, or multiple, just to show people that a lot of clients would say to us after we were trying to proactively say, hey, you know, I don't know if you paid attention to what this fruit company did with sweeping the leg on Safari a little while ago. And Watched your CPMs and open auction drop 40%, but that's 30% of your browsers usually on average, right? Well, there's this other company that we know has kicked the can four times, but that's coming. And so would you like to be ready or do you want to react defensively and go, oh, shit? And so a lot of folks, about 70% of the publishers we talked to, the standard line was, well, we just signed our live ramp deal three months ago. We're good, right? And we would say politely, well, we'll see in six months or sooner. You know, let's see how that scales. So we've always talked about this cocktail or portfolio approach where you've got to stitch together multiple solutions to get your scale back. And so classic ad tech hype of a handful of companies spending a lot of uh, good money in marketing to convince folks that they're the only one you need. And then you do the tests and you realize that, holy crap, we still have 84% of our audience to go find again to either sell or buy from. So it's usually kind of depending on what stage they're at. It's stitching it together and building use cases and getting people used to a new rhythm because, as you guys know better than just about anybody else, especially a lot of your great guests like Chris Kane and friend of the show and, and others, you know, we've had more than a decade of cookie retargeting in the open auction to trick ad servers and steal credit on a last click, last touch attribution model. And all of that, fortunately, is going away eventually. So you just published a report, a rebranding of news. Tell us about that. Yeah. So. We've, um, we pride ourselves in being this independent boutique shop to obviously help individual clients, but we're conflict-free and we only get paid on one side of the transaction, but that allows us to have good visibility on buy side and sell side with different teams that help marketers or help publishers. And there are a few times that we've tried to just rise all boats and, and help the whole industry. We did that with programmatic buying and selling training that we did in seven countries over six years way back in the day, teaching people this thing called private exchanges instead of thinking programmatic is only open auction. We did a research study 18 months ago on the post-cookie targeting analysis to show that you needed more than one solution. So news is our number one category today uh, of publisher clients, um, surpassing healthcare and pharma uh, last year. So we've we've had a lot of folks that, that cater to left, right, and center of the aisle. And as a journalist and someone who went to school to be either Ted Koppel or Bob Costas back in the day, go orange, we've wanted to, very similar to our BFF and multi-time client and friend of the show, Lou Pascalis, we've been talking for about five years, just like he has brilliantly been speaking 
with a little more spending power and influence uh, over the years from his great history of supporting news and real journalism. So our initiative that we kicked off at CES with five great uh, partners and underwriters, we launched research uh, with our partners, Advertiser Perceptions, and found what we had already heard anecdotally and what the IB had already picked up nicely right after the pandemic with David Cohen uh, talking about why news is important. And this isn't just a moral or ethical thing. It's just good business. So one out of three marketers are currently blocking news overall as a category. That's incredible. Not the two per- yeah, <laughs> not just the 2% of you know bad images around a war or around a pandemic or around a plane crash or things that understandably over you know decades we're used to shying away from, but all news. Like there's too big of an easy button that's been provided by the targeting companies in the middle, along with a buyer mentality of fear, mostly uh, we have found, where they just don't want to have the conversation. They don't want to have their client get blocked and boycotted. They just don't want to act as agent. And so much of the high quality, high traffic sites are news in the open web. So then they're probably pushing a lot of their money towards lower quality sites that aren't news. And lower quality, including MFA and just, you know, fraudulent setups and just banner farms and all the things that uh, your great previous guest, Chris Kane, uh, returning champion, has already highlighted in the work that he's done and that we've done with ANA and others trying to teach people that, you know, all you got to do is move money to where there are actual humans. Right. Uh, so you also found that um, that 42 percent of the advertisers say that they ins- fully insist on a transparent seller stuff, Jason. But most of them don't know what that is. Well, right. Yeah, there's also a percentage that don't know what that is. So uh, all of these things, of course, have to come down to education. And again, when when you've got policy that says, let's stay away from an entire category, not only are you missing reach and frequency that you think you're picking up by being in four uh, social platforms, but really not in terms of quality of environment. But yeah, obviously, there are some ways to take some pretty simple steps that have been established from our friend Tony Katzer and a lot of others to, you know, identify real quality that your listeners know all too well. But obviously, uh, there's a second layer of CMOs and heads of ops that that aren't there yet. And so the next phase after CES is this roadshow tour where we're talking to agencies one at a time, marketers one at a time, and then the tech companies to show how subcategorization is important. And again, making sure that you're promoting everyone that's doing things the right way. There's this general feeling like 2024 might be a really, really bad year for publishers uh, with basically traffic declines, cookies going away. So CPM effectively CPM declines and traffic declines at the same time. And maybe the election is a is a silver lining. Do you think 2024 is going to be just a terrible year? I think our friend Brian Weezer and a lot of others, when you look at total ad spend, it won't look as bad. But just as we started to see in 23, when you drop down below the five companies I mentioned before, throw in seven or eight commerce media folks that are on the rise. And then you look at the next 500. Yeah, problems. People that have relied too much in the open auction, people that have had their business way too vulnerable to social traffic, where social platforms have brilliantly taught people to barely even read headlines, let alone the first paragraph clicking through to the actual publisher. Um, That's been brilliantly evil. And, uh, and beneficial for them and to the detriment of publishers and, frankly, citizenry. So, yeah, a lot of factors coming in that'll hide 24 in aggregate. But then we knew, I mean, there were dozens of publishers that had a really terrible Q4. Um, right. So momentum's not that great. 
let's assume that this is a bad year for news publishers. Let's assume it's a bad year for news publishers specific to like just like programmatic and and ad sales for the reasons you um, you pointed out. How do they make it through? Like, what are some of the alternatives? What are some of the new ideas that you're bringing to them? Or is this like, hey, we need to just like fight hard to prove the value of news and you know real human beings and and all that? Yeah, folks that know me, I mean, I'm not the chicken little usually in our industry. I'm the eternal optimist, and and so thanks for letting me <laughs> give the other side of this. Yeah, the reason it's going to be challenging is because they haven't been set up to be leveraging their first party uh, like they should. They haven't been set up to integrate their sales teams to sell all transaction types. There are still too many that think the word direct means only IO instead of programmatic direct as well. Um, and so there are some steps like my alma mater, New York Times, and quite a few others that have taken the steps to not just have multiple revenue streams with subscriptions, but to actually couple their data, which is unique with their audience and environment, which is unique and sell that together instead of the classic, well, you know, if you do an IO with me, you get all these other goodies and then, yeah, we'll see you in the open auction. I mean, there's a middle layer there that is huge. And fortunately, you know, we've been on record for four years saying the open auction should probably drop to about the same 10 to 15% that it was that we all know when it was called ad networks, which is why SSPs and DSPs got going to provide a tiny bit more transparency than ad networks which was the unsold inventory. But un unfortunately, we got into a habit of, you know, boiling the frog with putting a 14, 300 by 250 down the right rail and, you know, um, just adding and adding. And obviously, consumers have finally said, okay, we're, we're dead now. We're, we're done. Yeah, there's a lot of things publishers can do to just be smarter and to execute better. Um, but the long-term trend for pure ad support is not great, which is part of what we talked about uh, with the Messenger and Arena and some of these bigger publishers having challenges. So I want to I want to take a break and go to the news because there's so much news this week, including the Habu stuff, more Alfonso updates, et cetera. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back. All right, we're back. Eric, what should we talk about first? Habu? Of course. All right. Why don't you take it? Hit us. So this is this broke uh, last night after after the close um, because uh, LiveRamp, publicly traded company, one of the one of the top companies in in ad tech, um, acquired uh, Habu, a uh, a clean room provider, a clean room startup for uh, $200 million. 170 of it was cash. I, I you know, sort of like mistakenly tweeted that it was, it was all cash and 30 was in uh, LiveRAM stock. According to the release, um, there hasn't been too much written. This was ju just a press release, not, not a lot of follow on. Habu is supposed to be contributing 18 million to LiveRAM um, for the 2025 financial, which implies a 7X, I'm sorry, an 11X multiple which is uh which is solid so i think this is uh this is great it's number one you know a, like great company and sort of validation of you know this this whole you know privacy centric uh focus moving forward to you know a, a publicly traded uh you know leader doing a you know a big acquisition to start off the year and, and three at a, at a really good multiple so we weren't an investor in, in in habu um like huge credit to the superset guys tom chavez for for incubating and, and doing it but you know from our perspective this is this is great and hopefully sets the tone for a year I interviewed Habu, as I mentioned earlier on the show. I had done a round of interviews with all the clean room companies, all the major ones. I'm not because I use the best because I haven't used any of these products, but I will say that I found Habu to be maybe the most thoughtful about the opportunity and the way they were using technology. Uh, they had a partnership with Snowflake that was very deep. 
So that makes a lot of sense. I think one thing I kind of scratch my head about a little bit is that LiveRamp had also had a fully functional clean room and it had the huge advantage of it being tied to their identity product and their third-party marketplace. So I don't know if this was capitulation, that the build wasn't going as well as they thought. I found it a little bit surprising that they needed to do this to shore up the offerings. Matt, what are you hearing in terms of clean rooms? Is it, you know, there's been so definitely a trough of disillusionment on clean rooms over the last 12 months. What What's your take on this? So for context, we've got, we're official partners with Snowflake, AWS, and Permutive, and we uh, should be signing Habu and InfoSum by next week. Um, based on good meetings last week, uh, there might be a little bit of a speed bump with Habu, obviously. But no, we're fans of... Uh, Martin and and uh, and Tom and it's good to see uh, Crux alums uh, successful in another uh, path as well. Um, shout out to uh, Omar's uh, tree of uh, good folks there. Yeah, I mean I, I'm sure Eric's not the only one excited of uh, 2021 multiple there. You know it feels like three years ago in terms of wow that's juicy. Um, it also is reflective of who the buyer is and what Scott and the team needed on a win here, as you pointed out, Ari. It's not that their solution's been a total failure, but obviously it wasn't as all encompassing to provide everything needed. We thought it was telling when uh, Disney's show at CES, which coincidentally, unfortunately, happened to be the same time as ours, they nicely did a a virtual and we noticed that they were touting Habu a lot more than Snowflake. Obviously, there's Mm -hmm. a relationship and ownership there, so it's not like it's a total diss. But yeah, we found that, uh, you know, we're starting to pull out of the trough a little bit. Um, And obviously, Habu had done enough to get uh, Scott and uh, and everybody else's atten- uh, David's uh, attention over there. And we're starting to see real use cases. That's what we pride ourselves in and being the services layer for all these guys of, you know, hey, after you sign that $40 million two-year SaaS deal, there's going to be a CFO probably sometime this year going, wait, what did we get out of that again? Right. It's a pretty decent number. And then if you say, well, you know, we had a few panels and uh, we were able to move one upfront deal a little better with a 10% higher CPM. That, that's not that convincing. So this is the year of scaling those, picking your winners. Obviously, clean room interoperability is going to be key. So another good reason why uh, hopefully LiveRamp will continue that with Habu's philosophy and, and should be a, a win for the industry for sure. Yeah, I think also LiveRamp is the public stock that is the most in the center of the bullseye for cookie deprecation. And there's a lot of question marks about that company. Is it some people could say it's an opportunity, right? They become the currency post cookie. But um, there are also some pretty obvious headwinds to that stock based on on cookie deprecation. Yeah, there's there's two other things to think about here. So um, so it's Snowflake, right? Snowflake acquired Samoa which um, isn't as far along uh, as Habu, but Snowflake's got their clean room. And then, you know, hang, hanging out there is InfoSum. And, you know, you sort of w- w- wonder what precedent this sets for, for InfoSum, who raised uh, $90 million, you know, uh, and just sort of that last raise was, was during the time where, where multiples and, and valuations were, were, were quite high. So, um, so that's something we should, we should keep track of as well. I'm sure there's a lot of people keeping track of that. All right, let's Probably. move on to the next story. So I want to follow up on the LG Alfonso uh, situation. Oh, yeah. so that was that raised some eyebrows last week. Uh, as a reminder, last week we covered this based on a ad exchanger story. We hadn't done any original reporting that uh, Alfonso, the Alfonso investors had sued LG uh, for effectively taking over the 49 percent of the company that they didn't own by kicking board members out. And Alfonso sued them and won. So the judge is reinstating the Alfonso 
board members. So since then, I have done some original reporting. Um, so first of all, I talked to Tony from LG, who's their head of marketing, and he said no comment because it's a legal matter. Oh, well, thanks, Tony. <laughs> but then I did talk to some Alfonso shareholders who were off the record. Well, first, let's say what the Alfonso shareholders official statement was, which was, I'll, I'll summarize a little bit. The court found that the founders have a continuing right to appoint board members. The founders have until January 24th to select those board members. There are three of seven board members that get to select. So the founders expect to potentially exercise their right to register their shares and force an IPO after that, perhaps an early Q2, which will require an S1, which may take some time. And based on that, and subject to market conditions and other factors, including an upcoming tender offer the LG is required to make to buy up to one-third of the shares, we expect the company could get listed by late 2024. Um, so that's the former Alfonso shareholders or the current Alfonso shareholders looking to force LG ads to go public by early 24. They own 49%, but they have the rights to push it to go public. I also spoke off the record with some various people and got a little color. First color is, I think last week, Eric had estimated they did about $500 million in revenue. Uh, I, I heard the numbers closer to six fifty, dollars uh, and that it's growing about 30% a year, and it's incredibly profitable. Eric, what do you think that's worth, the company? What's, what market cap would you give a company with those numbers? I mean, you know, probably closer to $2 billion than yeah. one. <laughs> one and a half, I would say. Oh, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, right. split the difference. We don't get hired to uh, put specific dollar amounts on. We talk about the drivers that make that up. But sure, yeah, somewhere between two and two and a half these days would be a good place to put your uh, bets down. All right. So effectively, this is a negotiation. This is a little game of chicken. Yeah, I, I'm sure the folks in Korea do not want to lose this very fast growing high margin business as compared to the fairly slow growing low margin business of making air conditioners and TV sets and things like that. And so it's a question about whether they're willing to pay the price to the shareholders to buy them out. Yeah, and it's and it's another example of why culture eats strategy uh, for every meal of the day, including fourth meal uh, at one in the morning. Because if you look at the players of who started Alfonso and the people who are running LG and then the folks who are, excuse me, LG ads, and then the folks that are running LG, yeah, you can understand why some folks might not feel as much love or recognition that uh, this is classic. We've seen it quite a bit before in terms of strategics buying where it's always what happens after the tombstone uh, that's more important outside of the headlines and the cha-chings for a couple of uh, uh, valuable banks. There's also a fun little wrinkle, which, you know, I heard from a couple of people, which is if you were an LG ads employee, what outcome would you like to happen? <laughs> you know, the, I think it's pretty yeah, clear I, <laughs> that you'd rather be part of a two billion dollar publicly traded company with stock options and things like that. Of course. Yeah, I didn't I didn't ask our friend Mike Brooks, who just started last week uh, over there. But yeah, uh, depending on how you came in, uh, of course, it's always tough to thread the needle of keeping everyone's eyes on the same prize when the prize is very different for folks, uh, at least financially, when they Absolutely. came in or when they're about to leave. Yep. We've never seen something like this before. This is wild. This is absolutely wild. So we will keep on the story and see how it evolves. Um, the other big news of the week was uh, Sandbox. Sandbox stuff. A lot of conversations about Sandbox. I'd like to characterize it as, you know, in the stages of grief about cookies, we've sort of exited the anger phase and now we're in the bargaining phase. Um, <laughs> but there, there's still a little bit of anger left over. Golf, uh, <laughs> golf clap applause for those of you not able to see. Yes. All right. So. 
first, there was a Digiday article by our, our friend of the pod, uh, Ronan Shields, who um, indicated that the, the news in the article was, first of all, the trade desk was starting to play ball. But really, the news was that Google was paying people up to five million dollars to work on the sandbox. So it's sort of a grant system. And they've paid several parties. I think Index and OpenX uh, were on the list. That is kind of eyebrow raising um, in that, you know, this whole thing is supposed to be positive for the industry and a big change in the world. And they're having so much resistance to working on this, so much complexity in working on this that they have to open their wallets and, and pay. Um, and later in the week, the Trade Desk CMO tweeted something really nasty about this the, uh, to the effect of like, hey, they have to pay people. It's so bad. And then I'll get more comments in a moment. But first, I want to talk about the, the epic uh, novella by Jeff Green over at The Current. Dude is the best CEO in ad tech, but he could use an editor. Um, and he went off. <laughs> He went off on the Google Sandbox. There was no holding the punches. This is the must-read article of the week. It's at The Current. They make you give you their email address to read the article, which I think is pretty amusing. And he, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. I also tweeted this. I honestly leave the examination of their many docs and APIs wondering if we're witnessing the end of an era for Google. That's a good one. The docs are so complex that their full scope and implications are probably only fully understood by a few engineers at Google. I agree with that. Google has had thousands of engineers spend more than three years creating a product that takes the industry backwards. Google invested billions to make the Internet worse. Uh, I mean, there's so many here. Uh, Google didn't take the bold move that Tesla did to innovate with open source. Instead, they, they're they creating thrash for advertisers and publishers with little upside. And I, I can't even continue. It was just brutal. Uh, for those of you wondering if Jeff Green and the Trade Desk could still be a challenger brand and wear the white hat, even though Jeff and his team have done a lot to paint their hat black the last couple of years. Yeah, that was a good effort from him. It's amazing he got placement in the current. I mean, what a... What a you know, an independent editorial. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, the current is owned by the trade desk. Just so you know. Yeah, he must know somebody great, there. It's a great stage for Jeff, and they do some good things for sure. I mean, is this just? Are we just laughing and having fun, or is there some substance here? No, there there is. I mean, I'd I'd add, you know, probably our Paparo is probably the fourth person who understands the docs uh, that Google put out with uh, our friends Joey Trotz and Victor Wong and the whole crew there. I mean, we've been, I mean, we've been in the weeds in the. Uh, GitHub. We've been with. Uh, we've had multiple chats with the CMA uh, in Europe. Um, full disclosure, um, we were privileged to have the DOJ as a as a client for a couple of years, a few years ago, helping them with uh, one case that is public now and another that might be later. So we again pride ourselves trying to uh, sift through and represent where the truth is. But when you add this in with Performance Max and you add this in with them changing their attribution and method and measurement methodology to removing three of the things that seemed a little more common sense, but keeping last click, last touch. I mean, it's it's tough to separate out the what is good for the industry versus what is good for one company that happens to own a pretty dominant browser right now. So, I mean, it's, it's a tough needle to be thread. And it's great that uh, we are all able to celebrate 1% day. I don't know what you guys did. Um, we drank 1% milk the entire day. And, but, you know, hopefully Gross. the the laggards that are publishers and brands that have been waiting for one company uh, dangerously to tell them what to do are, uh, we're seeing a little bit more movement there. Um, but we, I mean, 
again, despite it being from Jeff Green, who's you know not a poor man um, and is doing pretty well as a number two player out there, he does obviously make some great points. Yeah. So, Matt, I just don't want to lose one little thread. So you're saying there's another DOJ antitrust case coming against Google that you worked on? Uh, well, the DOJ is a pretty big and, and uh, active group. And yeah, they there uh, there might be future stuff. All right. They've alluded to that, too. Yeah. One more point on this. I do recommend people read it. And uh, Jeff ends it on a somewhat positive note, saying, you know, effectively, I believe that this is going to end up being uh, a great moment for innovation. I believe that alternatives such as UID, you know, and there's sort of other identifiers, you know, this is this is a real moment for them. How much stock do you guys take in that or put in that? Oh, it, UID will increase share for sure, but so will 10 others that are deterministic, probabilistic, and many more that are contextual. Because again, we're fortunately removing, and this is part of the, the pain of 24 that, that's going to happen before we get to a much better place for the whole industry. This mid-market of tech companies and open auction, and I mean, we've been saying for seven years, there's no way there needs to be eight different SSPs in the US selling open auction display. Like, come on, really? There have been no macroeconomic factors, but I mean, it just shows how the pie kept growing to allow for for all this. So, I mean, we're going to finally separate uh, some wheat from chaff and there will be real identifiers and there will be dance cards lined up the same way Ad Exchanger wrote a daily article about every SSP matched up with every publisher and every DSP matched with every agency and SSP with DSP. I mean, you're going to see a lot of that and it'll start to separate again, uh, you know, share of spend, share of... uh, of identity and where our identity partner list, we've been on record, the logos will probably be dropped by a third due to a combination of M&A and what we call Darwinism. Well, I, I think this is a big effort of kind of reverse judo PR, where basically the actual news is that the trade desk is going to use the sandbox. Uh, they, I mean, it's in both the Digiday article and this very long op-ed, they say, yeah, we'll try it. That That's the only news piece of news in the entire discussion, but they surround it by effectively a, um, a deep criticism of what Google has done here. Um, and you know, I got some feedback on Twitter when I posted about this that folks said that it's not a real good criticism, that it's taken too long or there have been too many changes to the API. Fair. I mean, you want the API to be right. But that said, you know, we've been in a holding pattern for now two, three years waiting for the future. And uh, this is one of those things that really some aspects of it really needed to ship um, so that we could actually use them. We're trying to get uh, and expect to get a member of the Sandbox team on this podcast in the next couple of weeks. So please stand by for further discussions on on this topic. Other Google news uh, was layoffs. So layoffs in ads uh, in the hundreds of salespeople. Um, I think this is more more evidence that Google is seeing the future and they see Pmax and they see automation and they see open web with all of its complexities as less important. They specifically said that their cuts are primarily affecting large customer facing teams, meaning not the self-serve teams, the the ones who hand, handle, you know, our kind of people, the ad tech kind of people. I just I just see a lot of trends heading in this direction and, you know, I stand by my prediction that the network business gets spun out. Um, Matt, what, what are the odds? What's your percentage odds that the network business gets spun out? Ever or by a certain date? <laughs> Good question. Uh, let's say by uh, by the end of this year. 
they announce it. Sorry, I'm taking it way too literally. Because um, we we keep track of this and actually have our own little in-house uh, sports book on stuff. Like that. <laughs> yeah. um, confidentially, I want in. I want in. I want in. Like but- we had um internal bingo card of predictions in 2024, and and Ross leaving video amp was like the free square in the middle. Like that was. Kinda, <laughs> wow, that was catching, kinda, catching strays. Ross catching strays. <laughs> What, okay, give us the number between one and a hundred on, on uh, announcement of Google uh, Network Business spin out by December thirty first. Twenty percent. Twenty. All right. Good. Uh, Eric, what's your number? I mean, near near zero. There's an eventuality of it that's closer to fifty, but I mean, there's eleven months left. All right, let's keep going. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys followed this. Um, there's a app called Artifact um, that was uh, created by Kevin Systrom, who's the one of the founders or the founder of Instagram. I really like this app. I was actually just talking about it at the Chandelier Bar last week at CES. I was telling people I thought the future was reader apps like Artifact. And then it, he announced like that day, closing, done. Not a big enough market, he said. I, it doesn't make sense to me that there isn't a news app because people use Facebook for that and Twitter for that, even though they're not very good at it. But I guess I'm wrong. Were either of you guys fans of this app? I never downloaded it. I think I saw the announcement that he launched a new company and forgot about it. And there was there was yesterday. And there's, um, yeah, the, I mean, reader apps have been around for a long time. Instapaper was, you know, sold for basically nothing. Flipboard has been languishing. Um, so I just don't think there's a market for it. We'll, we'll give a shout out to our supporters at Newsbreak and our old uh, client Smart News. I mean, the aggregation, sure. Uh, anything that reteaches people to read actual news from actual sources and credits those sources we're fans of because that kind of reteaches citizenry and journalism. It's a natural pendulum swing of too many recognizing an obvious problem globally. Um, so, yeah, they're going to have various life cycles. We root for the messenger and everybody else that's, uh, you know, starting our uh, my old colleague, Barry, from The New York Times, has got her own service coming. So, yeah, there's going to be a new wave of it, especially because it's an election year in this country and, and fortunately renewed focus on paying attention to proper news. Yeah, maybe it needs Barry to be open White. source. Maybe it needs to be nonprofit, right? Maybe Barry maybe White just can't make starting, money on this. Well, Barry I mean, Weiss is not, starting a reader app. Is it? All, uh, I don't. Really? I don't. Uh, I don't know all of the business model yet, but yeah, uh, Barry Weiss is has, uh, is is in uh, MVP mode right now. Yeah. Wow, we're breaking uh, news left and right here. Uh, there you go. Is it only um, going to have right wing weirdo uh, takes on on news? Uh, knowing Barry and where her prior employer is, I doubt it. Uh, she'll be as inclusive as she always is, though. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, not there are different forms of nonprofit, and, and we're pretty passionate about this, and, and it's kind of part of my side hustle and some of our nonprofit work overall. We don't we don't think it should be billionaire donated nonprofit run at a loss with Benioff and Bezos nonprofit. <laughs> like there's that kind of in italics as massive supporters, and where one career track was going to be in local news, and seeing the dearth of unfortunately more towns every single month have not one, but zero papers. So you're not covering local elections. You're not covering local police or anything. Shout out to our friends at Daily Voice and others trying to fill that gap. But there are a series of business models that need to take place to re-recognize the value that news provides locally, nationally, and globally. Not everyone's going to be able to pay for seven news subscriptions, just like they're not paying for nine streaming subscriptions. So you know, fortunately, there, this is all towards a trend of uh, our main mission, not to have advertising become a tax on the poor. 
Like right. that's the big zoom out kind of channeling my inner Scott Galloway here. Um, like the least of the problems is what does Mercedes Benz do to market? Like that's not a big a deal. It's how do you make sure that citizens and populations know kind of important things that everyone should know, not through one wall or another. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of that, so uh, the first NFL playoff game was streamed. Was a KFC against um, not KFC <laughs> Kansas City against Miami uh, was uh, was exclusively on Peacock, um, and I, I don't think we need to belabor that point um, about it being annoying and people not wanting to download Peacock. I got a free subscription because I worked at Comcast briefly, but um, it was the biggest traffic day in the history of the internet. I think that's just kind of something worth noting. Yeah, uh, 23 million is a big number. They don't mention the 23 million that were pissed that are used to seeing <laughs> it on CBS um, outside of Kansas City and Miami. Let's see what the unsubs are going to be in 30 days. Um, very smart of them to promote Oppenheimer about 31 days after the uh, the, the uh, playoff game so that there's another reason for folks to keep it another month. Yeah, again, when you pay over $100 million for one game, you do the math, six bucks at $23 million. Obviously, a lot of those were already subscribers, but you know that doesn't even count the ads that, that ran uh, in there. So yeah, on paper in that window, that's a win for, uh, for, for uh, you know, Mark Marshall and the, uh, and the NBC crew, and kudos to the tech team for not having a break and, and good stuff there. But again, hopefully it's just a balance and not where everything's going to be going because you see Amazon's deal with Diamond, you know, as of this taping was yesterday, yep. buying them out of bankruptcy. And that's 17 major regional sports networks that could very easily now be prime only. And so I'm channeling my dad and my uncles and everybody who's over the age of 40 kind of going, you know, what happened to my sports here? Yeah, I think the future is more and more sports deals on streaming services. That's kind of obvious, right? Uh, when we had the fellow from Lightspeed here, he was making the case that uh, sports is still pretty fragmented. And he just if ESPN went to streaming only, that wouldn't actually break the logjam and that people still would need a whole bunch of other, you know, local TV to get their sports. I don't know how long that lasts. Like at some point that shifts. Well. If you were to do timelines with the major rights phase of the top 10 global leagues across five sports uh, on this planet, and then you look again, channeling inner Scott Galloway, who's written wonderfully about this as well. You look at the, uh, the percentage of fans who consume sports live under the age of 30, troubling yeah. for these leagues. So that's yeah. why Pat McAfee is still on the air and doing very, very well and got a big deal from Espen. So that juxtaposition of, streaming and trying to go where it's easier uh, for folks already to be consuming. But just the concept of the creator versus the passive viewer when it comes to sports and social media in general, it, there's a natural juxtaposition there. So it'll be interesting in about, frankly, three to five years when Apple, Amazon, Google, um, TikTok, and others you know, finish their next rights fees bidding as the major leagues come up again with what the concentration of the audience is and quite frankly, how many folks through old school linear aren't going to be around as much right. to watch. Mike Shields uh, covered this in his newsletter just yep. this week. So I uh, definitely should subscribe to Mike's newsletter. He talked about the uh, Gen Z not watching sports and that's something to very clearly watch. So this is a minor one, but I just want to bring it up because I, I love metrics. 
podcast metrics are very challenging um, when you buy podcast ads, except on Marketecture where you get your full money's worth. Um, but on other podcasts, you may not know exactly how many people will see the ads. Um, and w- one of the unfortunate metrics that people have to use is download counts. And Apple changed the way it does downloads radically without telling anybody. Um, yeah, and it gives, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's sometimes people forget how how much power Apple has on the podcast market, even though they don't really care about it and don't actually have a business there. But anyway, they changed their way of measuring downloads such that files are not being automatically downloaded because you subscribe to a podcast unless you listen to it pretty often. And the details are complicated, but effectively, it really hit uh, podcasts that publish a lot. So podcasts that have a lot of episodes, um, you know, like daily episodes, those ones had their download counts just radically reduced because people may not listen to it every single day. And has a it's another kind of headwind in the ongoing ability of podcasters to create a big business. As we've said before, the estimate is that the whole podcast business is about $2 billion. And in contrast, I interviewed the head of ads products for Spotify just a week ago, and he said uh, Spotify is effectively on a $2 billion advertising run rate. So Spotify is effectively the same size as the entire podcast business. I don't know if anyone wants to chime in on that. Well, but. it's it's another example of the challenge of attribution and measurement and having both audience counts and ad engagements be counted properly by an independent third party. It shows the power of one of five companies that are closing in their walled gardens further. I mean, the bigger zoom out is that, you know, this rebranding of news is an industry initiative important to us and we think to everybody just about equally. There's another initiative we've been talking about for at least five years where, I mean, if you guys were to keep score of how many times has a company had their business practice go full walled garden versus full open web, by our count, the score is about 75 to two. And, you know, the trade desk is one of the two and they may not count anymore with open path and everything else. So, I mean, there hasn't been a lot of commercial incentive to go hybrid. There hasn't been a lot of commercial incentive for any very large or very medium-sized company to say, you know what, I want to share. Um, I think it's more important to the advertisers and the audiences to appreciate and the publishers to actually know what's going on outside of their own domain. And so this is just another example of one company, uh, you know, kind of locking it down and saying, we'll, we'll know everything. You guys will We'll tell you what you need to know. Yeah, a- Apple's intentions in the advertising business remain a bit murky. We know they're up to stuff. We know they're growing because of their search business. Um, you got to try to you got to try to get Todd Teresi on your podcast. Yeah, um, that uh, that will happen with international fly. man of mystery behind the, behind <laughs> yeah. behind the Apple curtain. He's the only continuity there for the last twelve years. Right? Yeah, he probably knows exactly what's going on. I'm sure he does, but like, does. but no one else does. Just. Quick, quick thing on this and might be a little wonky, but I, I know there's some there's some folks that have a lot of passion for podcasts and podcast metrics that listen to this. So we should do this, do this for them. Apple matters, right? Apple is uh, you know a big um, place of distribution and listening, but Spotify is larger and it's been larger since 2022. And you know Spotify, I think, does things the right way. Apple, I think, was just kind of cleaning up their own messes. Like I never used the app. And just once in a while, I will get a notification that, you know, says something, something just added another podcast. And, you know, there had been a series of episodes that had been downloaded onto the app just sitting there. And in no way should that be like a selling point for a podcast, you know, just like number of downloads. And I think that, you know, the the trend, you know, for the most successful Mm -hmm. podcast advertisers has been host read. 
has been, you know, some sort of like code, some sort of, you know, a- affiliate thing. And that's where, you know, you see this like concentration of top like eight to 10 or so more B2C focused brands that are making podcasts work. There's a formula for it that really doesn't require anything in terms of measurement and attribution. Yeah, absolutely it's all performance-based. Uh, also, uh, we shouldn't underestimate YouTube in this market. So Google shut down yeah. the standalone podcast player they had, the Android podcast player, whatever it was called, and they've pushed their podcast publishers to now publish on YouTube. And they also implemented an a, uh, automated way to publish there. And, you know, the Markitecture podcast is available on YouTube as well. You should if you prefer that, you can listen to it there. Um, so uh, so they're going to be a pretty big player here um, as as that ramps up. So we're out of time. Two billion users. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, they're a huge footprint. We're, we're out of time. We didn't. I just want to make a call out to another article that you should read. Scott Messer who's a friend of the pod. He wrote a great article in Ad Exchanger called uh, The Precipice of and peril of publishers in ad tech or something like that is like a weird title. Anyway, it was excellent. We were going to talk about it, but we ran out of time. Matt, thank you so much for being here. This is great conversation. All right, Eric, been uh, a bucket list item, privileged to be part of season two, which we know is always the stronger season coming off of the premiere. Great to see the success of architecture. Well-deserved for my both of you. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Too kind. It's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you for subscribing to Markitecture. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.